Hey everyone, I'm Eric Peckham, and this is the Monetizing Media Podcast. My whole focus is breaking down business opportunities across media, entertainment, and gaming. I'm joined by a leading entrepreneur, executive, or investor in most episodes to share tactical insights about the strategy of their company, the investment thesis they have, or topics like business models, pricing, and creating loyal fans. In this episode, I'm diving into the trend of one-person newsletter businesses with Polina Marinova Pompliano. A former business journalist at Fortune Magazine, Polina is part of a recent wave of content creators to launch their own freemium subscription newsletters using the Substack platform. For her newsletter, The Profile, she curates the best in-depth profiles of business and cultural leaders from around the web and adds her own analysis of the lessons others can learn from their stories. Well, Polina, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. Well, I guess maybe the, the most interesting place to start is giving us a quick health check of where the profile stands now. So as you've jumped in full time, where it's grown to as this go-to newsletter for profiles. So I've been doing it every week since February of 2017. It's grown into tens of thousands of subscribers today, but I haven't done any proper advertising or marketing of it beyond just word of mouth and social media. So I promote it on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. But beyond that, I haven't done too much and it's grown organically. So that's why I think the the click-through rate and the open rate are, are really healthy uh, versus some of the traditional newsletters as they stand. Are you able to share the, the open rate, click-through rate? Yeah. So open rate is consistently week after week over 50%. So since I started it though, I added a paid newsletter that I send every Wednesday, which is called the profile dossier. And it's a deep dive on an individual person. So those have a really high open rate because people pay for that extra newsletter. So that ranges like 60, 70s. And then click through is consistently, let's say 25 to 30% week after week. And, and I mean, that's, that's certainly very high for click-through. How important is the click-through rate in your measuring your own success? I guess in, in emails that are more curation-oriented of linking to profiles, that's very important. Yep. But it sounds like the dossier, that's less about curation and more about your own writing. Yeah, extremely important in the Sunday newsletter because I am, like you said, curating it. So not only does the click-through rate matter for, you know, are people actually interested in clicking on the articles, but they give me insight into what are people reading and what are they interested in. So on Sunday, I have eight to nine long-form profiles on interesting people and companies. And one of them I select to be my highly recommend. Whenever I see that the people did not click on the highly recommend, I try to figure out why that was, because usually it's the first one, it's the highly recommended, and maybe there's been three times in the history of the profile that people haven't clicked on that one, but it gives me insight into, oh, maybe the audience would like to hear, maybe I recommended a sports profile and people are more uh, business-minded than that. How do you view your job in the sense of curation versus creation? So Eric, it's so funny you ask that because every year I do a reader survey and I ask them questions like, would you prefer more original content or would you prefer curation of existing content? And every single time I do that, it's always 50-50. So it's like, oh, great. I'm, I'm glad I did that because it told me literally nothing. But 
I, I, well, I, I think that there's a balance, right? So I didn't start curating because I wanted to. I started curating because it was the nature of when I started it. In February of 2017, I was still working full-time at Fortune Magazine. It was against my contract to go create original content for myself or for other publications. So I had to curate. So even if I wanted to create original content, which I did, I couldn't. So when I left Fortune, I've been thinking much more holistically about, I would love to write original content. And I've been doing that a little bit with the dossier, like you mentioned, and some other articles, uh, one-off articles that I do, and interviews with Brandon Stanton and people like that. But right now I'm in the process of brainstorming what does a profile of the future look like? It's not just text and photos and videos. How can I innovate in that area versus just doing what's been traditionally done? And that is going to be original. I just don't know if the answer is, yeah, original content. Like we've always thought about original content. Yeah. At the decision point where you decided to quit fortune and go all in on this, how big was the newsletter in terms of number of subscribers or how much money it was generating? It was generating little money uh, because originally I had set the price. So I left fortune on March 20th. I started the paid layer in January. I think it was end of January. So I was originally charging a hundred dollars a year, $10 a month. And the people who signed up for the $100 a year were extremely, extremely loyal. And those are the people who are like, Paulina, like anything you write, I will be there. That was, that was good to know that people would pay, but it wasn't that many people. Then I dropped it to $50 a year and it kind of exploded from there, but it was good to test. I was not making, I was barely making any money when I left, but I had 10,000 people, which is also not that much. And so Basically, what I did before I left at the decision level is I looked at the growth of the list. I looked at how many people had signed up at the $100 level. When I dropped it, I saw how many people signed up there. And I did the math and I backed into here is the exact number of paying members for the profile I need to match my salary at Fortune. And I made that, what, I thought about that before I made the decision to leave, because otherwise if it was completely impossible for my level of growth, I wouldn't have done it. Mm-hmm. I know you, you said you've just been doing an updated brainstorm of what the future of the profile looks like. I'm curious, how much is this a superpower one woman media business versus you want it to evolve into a larger media company with teams working on all sorts of different content products? Yeah. So right now I'm testing the limits of what I can do myself until it totally breaks. And then I'm like, oh, okay, I need more people. Because I think the biggest mistake I see people do is like, I need a person for this and I'm going to hire for this. It's like, you're not making any money. Maybe get to a point where you're so profitable. It, it literally is a no brainer. I'm very, very conservative when it comes to money and hiring and productivity and all that kind of stuff. Right now, I think I can handle what I've built so far myself, but uh, I talk about this a lot. I basically watched a documentary 
and then did a profile dossier deep dive on this chef named Grant Ackett. And he basically is extremely innovative. He's an original thinker. He has this restaurant in Chicago called Alinea, which is considered at one point it was the ranked the best um, restaurant in the world. He is extremely creative because he'll go anywhere like an art museum and he'll look at a piece of art and say, why can't I eat off of that? And why do I have to, he'll ask questions. Why do I have to eat from a bowl or a plate with a fork and a knife? Who, who decided that? He blows it all up. He creates a totally really innovative dining experience that follows chapters in a book. And every few months, even though the menu is working and people are loving it, he blows it all up every couple of months. And his, the people who work for him are like, why are you doing that? And he's like, because you can't, you have to force yourself to innovate because otherwise like stagnation, you get really comfortable, whatever. So for me, when I saw that, I started thinking about it in the context of profiles. At first I curate profiles, right? Other people's written work, I curate that. Then there's my own. I take a person's life and career and I synthesize it down to the lessons we can learn from this person. The next step, I think, is something, okay, now how can you actually implement those into your life in a very specific way? So I'm thinking of doing some sort of educational component to the profile, but I will be testing it. So my first idea is I want to do one class just on creativity because I've studied so many people in the creative space. I want to be able to distill their techniques and be like, here is exactly how they did it. And here's how it may apply to your work. Because the biggest thing is too many people just create an entire course. And then it's like, "Mm, maybe that wasn't right for your audience. Maybe you should test it along the way. So that's what I'm working on now, but we'll see. Well, I I see a perhaps tension between depth and breadth as you expand. How do do you view the future from that standpoint? Yeah. So I, I do think that there's a lot of breadth, right? There's a lot of content out there. Very few people have the time to go through all of that to get the twists and turns and to find the in-depth stuff. That's why my job is to be like, okay, let's go in-depth and then you can take away what you want from that. But very few people actually want to go down those uh, rabbit holes on a weekly basis. I want to dig more into the solo writer business model and, and kind of your journey in this. There's been a whole wave of notable writers who've taken this path, specifically going to mm-hmm. Substack to base their newsletters over the last year or two. I'm curious to get in the tech stack of a one-person media business a bit. Why did you choose Substack as your platform? And what are the other tools out there that you use to run this all yourself? <laughs> a notebook. <laughs> no. So, okay. So I, when I started in 2017, I started with Tiny Letter. Then the newsletter grew to a size that Tiny Letter couldn't support. So then they kicked you off to MailChimp. I did MailChimp. Then I did MailerLite. The reason I kept hopping from one to the other is because my biggest problem was that the newsletter kept going in people's spam folder. And I hadn't found a good solution for that. Also, I'm not a good designer by any stretch of the imagination. And the fact that MailChimp and MailerLite let me design my newsletter was a big mistake. In my mind, I was like, oh, this looks so good. And now I look back and I'm like, holy crap, please don't. So Substack, the reason I think so many people have gone and the reason I certainly went is because they, Hamish and Chris, the two co-founders, figured out that 
writers are good at writing. They're not good at designing and figuring out tech stuff and uh, trying to figure out like payment methods and connecting the thing. They just want to write. And I think when you identify people's strength, give them the ability to do that and build everything around them, that's going to work because I'm not an email marketing person. I don't know how to do all that stuff. So it really helped me in that regard. And that's why I'm still on it. Substack, you don't have to pay a monthly subscription and you ha- can have a free newsletter on there. Why am I paying mail or light like 30 bucks a month or whatever it was? I'm actually losing money. So I switched over to Substack in 2018. And the thing that I love the most is that I don't know how and I don't know why, but the email deliverability was so much better. It never went to spam before like half of my emails would go there. And it really sucks for a content creator when you're trying to be consistent and you're trying to earn your audience's trust to have them not receive your newsletter, even though you wrote it. Any other tools that you use? I guess analytics is through... Substack as well. I also use Google Analytics because I'm obsessed with analytics. <laughs> so I do Substack's own analytics. I do Google um, Analytics. Until recently, I wrote everything on Google Docs, but somebody showed me Notion and it's basically the same as Google Docs. There's just emojis. So now I do that to organize my stuff. And that is all I use. And I use a ton of notebooks just because for me, physically writing helps me remember things. So certain things that I want to like make sure I remember I write down and then it's easy for me to go back and look at it. I, I'm curious then on the user acquisition side, I mean, you said thus far, it's been pretty much all word of mouth. I know you've done some cross promotions with other newsletters and there's kind of a movement right now, or at least a couple initiatives rolling up specifically Substack writers into a bundle. Mm. I, I'm curious from a, a kind of partnership standpoint, what you've done or what you're considering. Yeah. So first, let me tell you why I'm not a fan of the bundling right now for me is because I came out of a big media organization to do this on my own. I do not want to be lumped with other writers in another media publication type thing just yet. I just, I think it's one, it's confusing for the brand. It's confusing to the audience. And if you don't have the right bundle, it can be actually harmful. So Right now, I'm just trying to earn the trust of people and I want to know if they're subscribing to the profile for the profile, not if they're subscribing to the bundle for somebody else, but end up getting the profile anyway. I've done link newsletter swaps, which have been really, really great. And I've done actually, so I've had people like James Clear and Carolyn Joyce, who's a former Olympic swimmer, write guest posts for the profile. I edit them and then I publish them. And those do well because for example, if you're Carolyn Joyce, you write something for the profile, you're going to then distribute it to your own uh, Twitter followers or your own newsletter, etc. So that's been really helpful. Just getting in front of other people's um, audiences. A third thing that I've done is I play these Twitter games because at this point, my Twitter audience knows about the profile. So my question is, how do I break out of my network? And one way I've done that is on Twitter, I'll say, hey guys, I claim to have read thousands of profiles in the last few years. Let me prove it to you. Respond to this tweet with a topic or an idea that you want to learn more about. And I'll 
uh, reply with a profile relevant to that. That's been really good because one, it shows off your skill. And two, it gets you in front of other people's networks. And they're like, huh, what is this profile thing? And they realize they can learn from it, et cetera. And they sign up. So those have been really helpful. But yeah, I, I think especially in the early days, I tried one time to do a Facebook ad and it, it's not the right people. It's just, you, it's really hard to target the right people and that kind of thing. Do you have a internal database of all the profiles you come across to, to be able to keep track of across all different topics? I have this master spreadsheet where I have articles, writer, publication, category, so business, sports, entertainment, mm-hmm. It's, it's massive, obviously, but the way I really keep track of it is on Pocket. Every single profile I've read, I save in Pocket, so it's easy to come back and find. I mean, they could do a better uh, job with their search tool, but it's relatively easy. And uh, yeah, that's kind of the only way I keep track of it. For the profile dossiers that I do, I created a living book on Gitbook where I, I have all of them. So if you just paid for the profile, you can still see all the ones I've done on Charlie Munger, Sarah Blakely, Elon Musk, but you can also see all the future ones as well. You have worked in large media companies. You're now you know, an entrepreneur building on your own. There's been a huge movement, especially in the writing community towards you know, their own newsletters or podcasts kind of going solo. What's your sense of what's happening in the space right now? Was this an initial wave and it's dying down where kind of people who are going to jump ship from the big media organizations at this point have already mm. done it? Or is, is this kind of wave still just beginning? So I, I actually think it is just beginning because I think the bigger trend beyond just like, oh, I'm in a media organization, I want to do this on my own. I think the bigger trend is that people subscribe to people. People are losing trust in the mainstream organizations of all sorts, religion, media, politics, etc., finance. They're losing trust in the large conglomerates, but they probably do have one or two people inside of those companies that they really trust. So I think the future is definitely People will subscribe to people and maybe over time they'll rebundle. <laughs> Certain creators will come together to create a bundle of creators and it'll start all over again. I don't think that everybody who's unbundled from these large media publications is only going to stay like in their own uh, brands. But I do think there's going to be some really some individual creators that build really big businesses from this. I'm surprised how many of the big publications still don't feature the name of the writer in a big way, Mm. the ability to follow them on the site, right? I want to get notified when this specific writer publishes something. Yeah, I think it's the natural big company fear of, well, if we make our employees successful, they'll want to leave or they'll want to renegotiate their compensation. Mm. But A, as we've been talking about, people are leaving anyway. And I think it's such a missed opportunity for those larger companies. I wonder if in a way this path of going solo and all the Substack writers will create a realignment there where basically it's like, hey, the the profile is really successful or whichever other big newsletter, your podcast, et cetera, media companies looking at acquiring them back into their ecosystem. Yeah, and I think you're right in that 
basically the, the infrastructure layer that's really never been there. I mean, back in the day, you could have a blog, but it was really hard to have all the, the tools necessary to only to, to run that blog by yourself and like benefits, et cetera, et cetera, and legal help. So I think now with new technology like Substack, you can do that and actually pay your bills. <laughs> Well, Polina, thank you so much. This was wonderful. Thank you so much, Eric. This is awesome. Thanks for listening to the Monetizing Media Podcast. You can join my Monetizing Media newsletter and find other resources, like a database of investors who focus on media and entertainment startups, at monetizingmedia.com. And don't forget to check out Polina's newsletter at theprofile.substack.com.